Our Father and God, we again thank you for who you are and what you have done. And we thank you that you have made yourself known to us in the things you have made and the events of life, and especially in your word, both living and written. And uh, we pray that you would strengthen us yet again for the, the task of being good students of the word, and that we might... Um, understand what you have for us here and uh, we pray as we continue to look at different aspects of this that you would uh, grow us in our our abilities to interpret your word uh, as you intended it to be known and understood and so we pray this then in Christ's name amen all right well the last uh, few weeks here have been focusing on a couple different genres focused uh, initially on narrative and uh, more recently than on epistle. And just a few things to keep in mind when we are uh, reading and trying to understand these different genres. And then we try to apply it, basically. And uh, here last time we read through First Thessalonians and compared that to what we see in Acts and, and, and so forth. Just trying to under, understand it in a, uh, you might say, more comprehensive way. Um, so... I wanted to now take a little break from the genre study, and we'll return to that, because obviously there's uh, several more here. Um, And I wanted to talk about some other things, and some of the other things we've talked about so far is that our basic hermeneutic is that Scripture interprets Scripture, and what we call the historical grammatical method of understanding and interpreting Scripture. And um, we, then we also talked about context and uh, how important it is to understand the context of something for us to be able to interpret well. And all of those things, and maybe especially the last one, becomes very important to understand what we're going to talk about next, and that is figures of speech. Um, figures of speech, in some ways, uh, can be the most misunderstood aspects of scripture because when you use a figure of speech the question is what is meant by it and i'm sure all of us have encountered someone from another culture and we say something and they look at us like you know we've grown two heads or something you know what in the world do you mean by that and we're used to the figure of speech but they aren't they take it literally or something or, you know, the Amelia Bedelia books or something like that, you know. <laughs> they take everything very literally. And um, obviously we can't do that. And this is one reason why I do not prefer the term to say, let's interpret the scripture literally. Because we don't interpret everything literally. I think the best way, the best term to use here is let's interpret the scripture naturally. What's the most natural meaning? Sometimes it is literal. Sometimes, as a figure of speech, it's not literal, but what is the intention of that figure? So, um, many times this is where people can get off track, especially certain figures. Some aren't so bad, some are more challenging. Um, And basically what we're doing here is we're using something, uh, a word, an idea that is out of the ordinary. Jim or Stan, you know if we have any spray? 
Okay, so when we use a figure of speech and we use things out of the ordinary, uh, the challenge here, of course, is how um, do you understand it in an ordinary way? And um, what happens here is that the writer is bringing together two different things, right? The uh, What we call the literal object and then the figurative uh, object or subject, depending on what's going on there. And the goal, of course, is to determine what they're trying to say. And um, so if we were to use um, the word cool, you know, Joe Cool, you know, remember the old camel cigarette uh, advertisements, you know, Camel Joe is cool. He's standing there with a cigarette. You know, Joe is cool. Well, we don't mean that he's cool in temperature. Uh, we mean that he's hip or rad or woke or whatever term we want to use anymore. Okay? And, uh, and yet even those terms need to be interpreted a bit, aren't they? Or if we say, like Michael Jackson, I'm bad. You know, well, it doesn't mean that he is doing something that is evil, uh, but he is cool, another way of saying it. Or today, um, I've heard the term sick being used in this context. And there's this uh, DIY show I like to watch, and, and the, the uh, main person on it says, well, that's sick, you know, that armoire is, is really sick. It doesn't have a temperature or, you know, whatever. So, um, but we understand the point, don't we? We might need a little time to figure out what they mean by it. Or, of course, baseball is going on. And maybe you uh, heard about the World Series last night, the dramatic finish and all this sort of thing. And, um, you know, we, we, uh, you know, on Wednesday you can get a free taco at Taco Bell because Mookie Betts stole second base. Well, he didn't actually in the middle of the night or something, go take the base and, you know, put it in the trunk of his Beamer or something like that. No, he, he ran first to second without getting thrown out. Uh, but it's a figure of speech, and we need to understand what is meant by that. Um, or the other night I was, I was watching, and I was like, in, in, in the course of about five or six sentences, I think every one of them had a figure of speech in it. And we see that especially in, in certain uh, contexts, and baseball is definitely one of those. And, uh, all right. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> um, so, like you said, he, he hit a liner over the left field fence. Well, it's not a line. It actually does have an arc to it. But it, it wasn't a towering fly ball that just happened to fall over the left field fence. Or he hit it on a rope. Well, there was no rope there. Okay. Or if you watched the game the other night, um, Bueller is the pitcher for the, the Dodgers, and he had 10 strikeouts in six innings. You know, it was a record and all this sort of thing. So they said, he was mowing them down. Well, there was no lawnmower there. Okay. You get the point here, right? We use this all the time. And, the, and the, the challenge is to understand what is meant by it. So, wow, I haven't seen it this clean in a long time. All right. Thank you. <laughs> all right. So we, um, for the most part, will categorize figures of speech into two categories, and then we kind of have a catch-all miscellaneous uh, at the end, but um, 
see if I can write on this yet. Um, we have figures of comparison. Okay. Anybody know what some figures of comparison are? I'm sorry? A simile, that's one of them. Yeah. Metaphor. Okay. Okay, personification. Yep. And one more we usually put in this category. Especially in regard to scripture, we think of this. Um, yes. Um, the challenge with allegory is we you have to let the text lead you in that direction. Simile is very common. Metaphor is very common. Allegory is found occasionally. But yes, we, uh, especially in Protestant circles, kind of shy away from it because of the Catholic Church using it way too much. <laughs> but sure, fine. Yes. Yes. Right, right, right. Yep, yep. And then you have figures of substitution. These might be a little harder for us, maybe. Anybody know some figures of substitution? Yeah. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily call that a figure of speech. Uh, it is important to the genre of Hebrew poetry, but wouldn't now you can use figures of speech in parallelism, but we would think of it uh, as a different idea there. Um, but we have something that's called synecdoche, and that is the part substituted for the whole, and then metonymy, which is a substitution of a particular attribute. So we'll, we'll talk about these things here and explain them more. And then there are um, some some other ones that we can talk about are dramatic irony and hyperbole, um, allegory, and, uh, and so forth. So my, my goal here is not to be exhaustive, but to emphasize some of the main uh, figures of speech that we see in the scriptures. Okay, so the, the, uh, the goal here is to find out what the literal subject is, what the figurative subject is or object, and, and then what is the point of comparison? And the general rule of thumb is there's one point of comparison. Occasionally there may be more, um, but then that would spill into the allegorical uh, understanding of things. So most of the time it's one, and we have to figure out what that is. So let's start here then with simile. And what do we typically use in a simile? What word or words do we usually find here? Like or, okay, okay, or even similar to, we could say. You know, sometimes you don't have these words. Sometimes you do. Um, depends on on the the situation. So if I said John is like a tower, what's the literal subject? John. What's the figurative subject? What is the point of comparison? Okay, okay, yeah. It, it, we need some context to help determine. I heard a few different choices there, right? Now, I wrote this one, so my intention was height. Hey, John's like a tower. He's tall. Hey, 
okay? Or we might think of Daniel Munson, you know. He's like a tower, you know. What is he, 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, or whatever he is, okay? If I said Bill is like a cheetah, okay? obviously Bill's the literal and cheetah is the, the figurative. What's the point of comparison here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, maybe he's covered in spots, but, uh, you know, the context is going to help you to determine what it is. Okay? Or using baseball again, Joe threw a bullet to first. Okay? Obviously, he's not throwing a piece of ammunition to first base. What do we mean by this? Yeah, threw it really hard. Okay? 100 miles an hour from short to first or something like that. Threw him out. Uh, he has a very strong arm. You know, these kind of ideas. All right, well, let's look at some here in the scriptures then. Let's turn to Psalm 1. Obviously, very familiar psalm here to us. All right, Psalm 1. And uh, let me um, start us here at the beginning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now, we, we have some figures of speech here already, don't we? But not simile yet. Verse 3, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. All right, so what similes do we see here? What's the first one? Okay. So what is our literal subject then? And who is he here? Okay, yeah, the godly, righteous man walking in the way of the Lord and so forth. He is like, now our figurative object or subject is? Tree. Now what is intended by that? Is he green? You know, does he throw acorns at people? I mean, you know, what, what is it meant here? Okay, deeply rooted, solid. What else? Okay, he flourishes. Matthew, did you say something? Okay, all right. What else? Okay, all right. And therefore does what? Okay, his leaf doesn't wither, prospers, he bears fruit. Okay. The, the main point of contact here is a sense of permanence and um, flourishment or flourishing uh, here. And, and, and everything that, that you all said contributes to that idea, right? And so we could break it down into several things, but the main point is he's established and he is going to bear fruit. Okay? Prosper. So what was the other simile we saw here then? Okay. Okay. And so, what's the literal subject here? Yeah, the ungodly or the wicked, and the figure, of course, is the chaff. 
And so what is the point of comparison in this one? Okay, okay. Okay, all right, yeah. The, the, the main point of comparison is also in contrast to what we just said, right? Instead of being planted firmly and bearing lots of fruit, it's just going to blow away like the chaff. And you know, even though we don't do harvesting in quite the same way as they did then, we still get this idea, right? You mowing the lawn or you see someone cutting hay in the field or something, and you, you can see the the chaff or the grass or <coughs> excuse me whatever blowing around and that's the idea because there's no permanence and there's no bearing of fruit no prospering in the things of the lord therefore there is judgment and so the main point of comparison in this case is the lack of permanence and so then that leads to the judgment he won't stand in the judgment or in the congregation of the righteous. So he won't be with other believers. All right. So let's turn over then to Psalm 19 and see another. All right. Now, I'm going to read verse 5. We probably need to reference other verses here. But in verse 5 here of Psalm 19, it says which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. So first of all, then, what is the literal subject? The sun, right, from verse 4. Okay, the sun. And so the sun is like, first of all, what's the image here then? What's our figurative object? bridegroom <clears throat> and then there's another one right he is like what strong man all right now the second one's pretty easy isn't it what is that communicating the son is like a strong man okay power and strength right it's running its race from one end of heaven to the other okay. he, he doesn't tire out he doesn't need to take a break that kind of thing he's note the strength and the whole point here is the son is declaring God's glory, right? And so the son is speaking. Now, there's some personification going on here. Um, and um, so what about the bridegroom? What is that image? What, what point of comparison is made here? Okay, all right, yeah. Um, at, at this time of the year, we're seeing a lot of sunrises, aren't we? <laughs> okay, because the sun's rising later. Um, I got up earlier than normal yesterday to go to the presbytery meeting we had. It was a committee meeting, and uh, um, it was it was still very dark. And got to see the sunrise. And I tend to be a night person and get up later in the morning, so <laughs> I tend not to see it as much. But um, anyway, uh, it, he is like the bridegroom coming out. Now, in our culture, it's the bride, right, that comes forth, and there's all this you know, pomp and circumstance of the bride. But in that day, it was the bridegroom that they did that for. And uh, so there's this idea of, what's the term you used, Dale? The, 
It, right, impressive appearance, like the sun rising. It's rather impressive. Now, re- remember that in, in pagan religions, there was all these questions about the sun. You know, what happened when the sun went down at night? And how did it end up over here again? And, you know, some of them figured it out through science and, and, and observation, and some of them had some kind of mystical or crazy ideas to explain it. But uh, the point is, every day, here comes the sun, maybe covered in clouds, but uh, here comes the sun to, in its um, grandeur, you might say. And that is telling us something about God. And that's the whole point here of the first half of the psalm. And so some are maybe a little bit harder for us to understand, because that one, if he said that the sun comes forth like a bride, we get that image a bit better, wouldn't we? Because that's what we are used to at a wedding, not the bridegroom. Um, but it's here's where we need to understand the historical context to better understand the point of this, this image, this figure. All right, let's turn to one more psalm. Let's turn to Psalm 42, another familiar one here to us. All right, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my uh, so pants my soul for you, O God. All right, so what is the um, the literal subject here? Oh, okay. Yeah, our our soul. And what then is the image, the figure? The deer. And what about the deer? Yeah, it's not the deer standing still trying to hide from its enemy or the one running across in front of you and you're driving down the road, but the one who is panting for the water. And um, the image seems to be here maybe um, the... Well, let me ask it. What, what is this image saying to us? I mean, the main point is, is, I think, straightforward, we understand. But the image of the deer panting, what, what is um, the son of Korah here trying to communicate? Okay, okay. And, uh, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, now around here we don't often see animals struggling to find water. Now, this summer it got pretty dry, but even so, most animals are able to find water around here. You live in another climate, they might really be struggling to find some water. And so they are panting. They're, they're desperate. And so I think where we live, Psalm 42, verse 1, doesn't have quite the impact. Okay. You live in the desert or a place that has a rainy and dry season or something like that, and this image takes on a whole lot more um, reality, I guess you could say. And, and I, I, I'm inclined to think the rainy, dry season is, is the, the intention here of the author, not... Okay, we're sitting around with lots of springs and streams and so forth. And I is a little thirsty and goes over and has a sip. And he can do that anytime he wants. Okay. 
maybe that's our approach to our panting for God. And that's not the idea, though. There's something much more desperate, uh, as Ben said, this, this deep need here in the part of the animal. Um, I think part of it, too, is we live in a culture where we can buy clean water very easily. So much so that we're polluting our oceans with the plastic. <laughs> and um, yet, it wasn't that many years ago that getting good, clean water, even in our country, was a challenge. And so, you see what I'm trying to say here. Let's not interpret it in light of our experience. Let's interpret it in light of what this son of Korah would have thought of when he penned these words. Or inked these words, you could say. Do you see the point? Okay. Our tendency is to be very egocentric in our interpretation. And we need to be other-centered. And what is the author intending? That is a biblical epistemology. What is intended by the author, not what does it mean for me? That's the last step. How do we then apply it? All right, any questions thus far, comments? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I yeah. saw this as Satan's pursuing us mm-hmm. in that way, and we should be panting, mm-hmm. you know, in that way. Well, you know, as you look at the the next verses, um, he's talking about his tears. They continually say to me, where is your God? So the author is suffering and people are mocking him. So the, the idea of opposition is certainly part of the context. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think in both cases you get to the same point. But you're definitely bringing in some context here that, that is uh, important. The soul being cast down, right? Verse 5, verse 6, verse 11. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Other uh, comments or questions? So uh, let me just re- reiterate that point. Um, let's you know let the text itself drive us in our understanding. And what did the author intend? Well, we can't go ask him. So you look at the scripture and let it interpret itself. Yep. Good. All right. Well, let's turn to Daniel chapter 7. You might recall I read this passage here a few weeks ago or something in uh, the service. Daniel 7. And um, let's look at verse 9 here a moment. Daniel 7, verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and its wheels a burning fire. A 
fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was, was seated and the books were opened. All right, we could keep reading here, of course. And notice now we're spilling into um, the uh, apocryphal, or sorry, the apocalyptic uh, genre here. But do you see the the similes used? What's the first one we encounter here? Okay, yeah. So the literal subject is his garment, yep, his clothing, and then the figure is the the, the white snow. And here we're using uh, as, okay, um, instead of like, but obviously either one. So what is communicated here by this? What's the figure of comparison? What's that? Okay, purity, okay, holiness, sinlessness. Okay. Now in the next line then, his hair, hair of his head was like pure wool. So obviously the hair is the literal and the pure wool is the figure. So what is the point of comparison? Okay, all right. Is it still communicating sinlessness and purity? Or is there a different idea communicated here? It is, it is, yep, yep. And uh, you see some of the same uh, image in other places, uh, maybe most notably in Revelation chapter 1, the, the image of Christ, uh, the, the white hair. Um, so yeah, today white hair is often looked down upon in our culture, but in that culture it was definitely the opposite. It's this idea of wisdom. Uh, so again, let this context drive us, not our own. Um, yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 the idea of holiness is not absent, but it has an additional idea of wisdom. And so, you know, maybe we can think of the image of, um, you know, Older and wiser, or something like that. Yeah, Joe. Yeah. 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 And, and notice it doesn't say white wool, so it's not bleached or something like that. Uh, it could have the browns and grays and all that, but it is cleaned, I think, is, is um, the emphasis, yeah. So I, I, I think there is somewhat of a repetition of idea with the last phrase, clause, but uh, uh, the idea of wisdom is the, the new additional point. Um, okay. Now, now we get into some really bizarre things here, right? The throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. Wheels? Oh, there's Ezekiel 1, right? And, you know, eyes all over it. And, and now we started getting into some more complex things. Uh, my point is not to get into that now, but just to call our attention to similes. 
and some examples that we see. Um, and so uh, this fire here that comes forth, I think the idea is showing uh, his, his uh, majesty, his, his greatness, that he rules over everything. Um, you know, the, I, I think those are the ideas that are communicated here. Um, not the fires of hell, for example, or judgment, um, but rule and, and glory and so on. All right, well, let's now look at a few in the New Testament. Let's turn first to Matthew chapter 13. Now, we're going to spend some time talking about parables as a genre in and of itself. And um, how we should understand those. But for now, just let's just notice the, the uh, figure of comparison. In verse 31 in particular, um, though we could look at a number of these, uh, in uh, Matthew 13, verse 31, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, the nice thing is, Jesus helps to explain the image here, doesn't he? But first of all, what is the literal subject? Kingdom of heaven. What's the image then, or the uh, figurative subject? Mustard seed. Now, what is the point of comparison? Okay. Right, yeah. very very small seed, but creates something quite large. So, in this point in time, I mean, you think even of uh, Jesus at the crucifixion. How many of his followers were there? Okay. A handful, right? And then even in the next days at the resurrection, not very many. Uh, at his ascension. Did appear to 500 at once, but you see the point. It was relatively small, but now the kingdom of God is how big? We don't know, but you got millions and millions of people over the years, maybe even billions at this point, of of true believers. You got more than that who claim to be believers but aren't. But um, but among the true believers, so it started small now is quite large. You can see the same, of course, with Abraham, started with him, and um, he has one son who's in the line of promise, and then he has two sons, but only one's in the line of promise, and then, of course, it jumps to 12, but through Judah comes the, the Messiah and so forth. So things started small and ended up quite large when they left Egypt, for example. So here's our, our image. All right, let's turn then to James chapter 1. All right. Let's start our reading here in verse 22. James 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. All right, so what is our literal subject here of this simile? Okay, I think I heard someone say man. Mm -hmm. And what then is the figurative subject? Okay, and in particular, it's not just someone looking in the mirror, but someone who then does what? Forgets, okay? So, our point of comparison then is what? What's James teaching us here? I'm sorry? (laughs) Yeah. And what are we not to forget? Okay, yeah. The word of God. The law of liberty, as he calls it here. Um, But it's not just remembering what it says was James' really whole point in his book. I've heard a few things. What? Okay. Yeah, living it out. Um, Somebody said something over here. Okay. Yeah, doing the word. Doing Christianity, you could say. It's not enough for us to be a Christian in name only, especially. We must do it. We must live it out. It's one thing to read the Bible. It's another thing to actually live by it. And, of course, chapter 2, the famous chapter, you're not justified by faith only, but by your works. And his point here is not work salvation, but these works demonstrate that your words actually mean something. You say you're a Christian. Okay, yeah, a monkey can say that, I suppose, or a parakeet or something. But, uh, you know, it's, is it genuine? And so here this image is communicating uh, this in a certain way. Now, again, here's one of those things where we have mirrors all around us, right? Hey, just here in the building we have, what, two in the ladies, right? Is it two and one in the guys? You know, and obviously, I'm sure in our homes we have uh, probably a handful or more. Uh, some of you ladies may have some in your purse. Mirrors in that day were certainly much less common, and for most people, it was not very bright and shiny like ours are, and so the reflection was much dimmer and so on. So when you looked in a mirror, you looked carefully. You even had to squint a bit, depending on how polished that that piece of metal was. Um, So again, what I'm trying to say is don't understand the image just from our experience. Try to understand it from James's mindset and how they used mirrors then. And um, if they saw a mirror, they didn't just glance on the way by. Is my hair straight? You know, I'll keep going. Okay, they looked very carefully um, because they just weren't as common or as good. At least some of them. All right, let's look at another uh, here, and we'll conclude with that. Let's turn to Revelation 13 again. I'm I'm uh, anticipating, or maybe I should say, just crossing into some other genres, like we did with the parable. 
Matthew 13 and Daniel 7, and now, uh, and we didn't even talk about parallelism in the Psalms, but uh, there are other genres. James is an epistle. Uh, here, Revelation, another epistle, but now, of course, the apocalyptic. In Re- Revelation 13, note verse 11 in particular. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Okay. So what is our, can we say, literal subject here? All right, well, that is a metaphor too, isn't it? <laughs> but let's just go with beast here. What is the figurative connection here? Okay, yeah, lamb and dragon, two different things. So now what's the point of comparison? Let's start with lamb. What's the point of comparison here? Okay. Somebody said something over here, I think. Okay, has the horn. So um, it, it's not a newborn lamb, I think is the, the point here. right? It has horns. It's a little bit older, you could say. Not totally innocent, but still, that's the idea. It's gentle. It's a lamb. It's not a sheep. It's a lamb. Um, And um, remember, this is in the context of the false prophet. And as I've said on a number of occasions, the false prophet is the the false church. The unbelieving and... um, and such who go to church, that kind of idea. So it looks good. The lamb looks good, right? But the other image is he speaks like a dragon. And so now you have the contrasting idea. Fire comes out of the mouth. Not good words. Not what you would expect coming out of the mouth of a lamb. But something very destructive. And, of course, that's what false prophets are all about. They look good, but they're spewing forth all kinds of filth and things that are not true. So anyway, the point here is just to give us some examples here of similes and uh, getting into this habit of of looking carefully. And we've probably all read them and probably all thought about this, uh, but uh, hopefully this will give us some... um, a little more intentionality as we come across these things in, in our readings. All right. Well, we better quit here, but we'll look at some other figures of comparison here next time. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word and um, what you communicate to us and that you communicate in ways to help us to understand, not just in abstract propositions, but uh, using images, figures to to communicate truth. And um, we thank you for that. We do ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment to be able to interpret well, uh, that we might rightly divide your word. We pray um, now as we gather for our worship that you would strengthen us by your spirit and that you would extend your kingdom. This mustard seed would continue to grow here today. We pray these things in Jesus' name.